Amen. This is the word of God. Amen. And may God write it on our hearts that we might not sin against him. We have established so far that this is an Advent series at RBC. It's a series that I hope maximally glorifies God as we as a people try to celebrate in this season the most wonderful time of the year. Now, that's a cultural expression, but we understand it to be the most wonderful time of the year because what are we celebrating? Well, we're celebrating the fact that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. He came as a baby, born of a virgin. He lived a perfect life, died a perfect substitute uh, for his own people, rose from the grave, and he reigns. Jesus reigns now, next to the Father. Secondly, we also celebrate in this season that Jesus comes through regeneration of the Holy Spirit by new birth. He comes into the heart. He is, uh, as our statement of faith says, a suitable Savior because he's our prophet and our priest and our king. He's all those things for us. And finally, we want to be a church that celebrates in this season that this first coming told us about his second coming as well. He will come back and he will get us. But one came before him in the flesh. John the Baptist. We have studied his origin story um, for the last two weeks, not his ministry as an adult, but rather all the time before he's born. And he's finally born in our passage today. That's because of the diligence of Luke's gospel witness that we get to know about John. And in the last two weeks, we know this. We know that John the Baptist was the last prophet of God prior to Christ's coming. And he was brought, uh, he came in the spirit of all the prophets, the spirit of Elijah. We also know that John the Baptist was the greatest man to ever live. That's because Jesus said that, and it was due to his proximity to Jesus, how close he was, even though he struggled with doubt in his life, just like you and I do. This morning, we finish our study of John's birth narrative by preaching through the passage that you just heard read by our sister in Christ. And uh, we learned that John the Baptist was the prophet of the Most High. You heard it say that. He is the prophet of God. He is a prophet of God who is Most High, the highest God. There is no one greater than God. Last week's sermon uh, banked on us talking about God's holiness. No one's greater than God. And John is the prophet of the Most High. And what I want to talk to you about this uh, morning is He's a prophet of something called a covenant, okay? And when nations come together and they want to form a pact of some sort, they want to form some kind of peace treaty maybe, or they want to make an alliance or a partnership, what we do is we send our best representatives to that type of thing, our best delegates or our highest commanders. We send our presidents If a CEO is to go and make a plan for his company or a merger, he goes himself. Why do we do that? Because we send with authority a person who can command our wishes, who can communicate our understanding of what the pact, the treaty, the alliance, the business partnership will entail. Now, I bring that up because God deals with man in this idea in the scriptures, but he does not do it in contract form, like all of the uh, descriptions I just gave would be done between nations, between business, but rather contrary to the contract idea, 
And honestly, contrary to every single religion and uh, even non-religious worldview that there is that deals in contractual terms, the good news of the gospel, of the coming of Jesus, is that God deals with us in something called the covenant of grace. The covenant of grace. Friends, there's a difference between contracts and covenants. As an introduction this morning, I want to tell you that. While a contract is legally binding, a covenant is a spiritual agreement. A contract is an agreement between parties, while a covenant is a pledge. A contract is an agreement that you can break, while a covenant is a perpetual promise from the covenantor, the person who's making the covenant. You have to seal a covenant, whereas you sign a contract. It raises the stake. A contract is mutually beneficial in its relationship, while a covenant is something fulfilled by the the covenanter or the one who's making the covenant, regardless of that. In this case, God's promises should be in view. A contract exchanges uh, one good for another, while a covenant is all about giving oneself to the other. You can opt out of a contract, while a covenant is about having the strength to hold up your part of the promise. Again, the focus being on God, especially in covenant keeping. This morning's passage draws deeply from this understanding of God and how God has chosen to reveal himself as a covenant maker, a covenant-making God, specifically the covenant of grace that he has made with mankind. Imagine this. God, in bringing John the Baptist and Jesus to the earth, was shaking hands in his covenant of grace, finally. The way you think about shaking hands with a a person in East Texas, right? It it locks in. That's right. This is what we're going to do. God is putting his signature down, finally, in the covenant of grace. And we call it the covenant of the Most High. And so it's fitting that John the Baptist, covenant, you know, the prophet of the Most High, he comes, and when he comes, it points people to God's covenant, the covenant of God's grace. Here's what we're going to learn this morning about the covenant of God's grace. It requires patience, it remembers providence, and it redeems a people. Beautiful news here this morning. Let's jump right in. The covenant of the Most High requires patience. It requires patience. Look at the start of the text. If you've missed the last two weeks, uh, these first two verses, 57 and 58, they may confuse you because you're just jumping into the middle of the story. I want to encourage you to follow us on our podcast. You can go back and listen to the first two parts of this series there and get the details. But quickly to tell you, Elizabeth in the text here was promised a child to be born to her and Zechariah in their old age. And that's exactly what God's done. He's kept his promise, and the baby is full-term and born, and it is a baby boy indeed, just like it was told. We have labored uh, the last two weeks to show the connections to the people of Israel's history and their understanding of who God is, along with this specific time period. Uh, Think about it like this. They are pregnant with God's word as a people and have been waiting for God's promises to be fulfilled, that is, to be born. The angel Gabriel has spoken for God. He's promised 
that the neighbors and the relatives around Zechariah and Elizabeth would be rejoicing when the moment came of this boy's birth. And lo and behold, we jump right into the day, and that's what's happening. There is great rejoicing. Notice the patience, however, that has been required to understand this. The covenant language, you notice there in 57, 58, it is because of God. The Lord has shown great mercy to her. That's what has given cause to the people's rejoicing with her. In other words, the persistence and patience in this sweet woman's trusting God. Elizabeth has trusted God through decades of barrenness, not having children, through uncircum, or excuse me, uncertain circumstances. And yet, now when she has what she's wanted, she celebrates God himself not her circumstances. Because she trusted God through her circumstances, now she celebrates. Patience does that to a faithful soul. And Elizabeth is a faithful woman. Patience. In in many ways, she represents the first fruits of, of covenant faith and patience. Waiting on God is worth it, in other words. She demonstrates that. Boom, right out the bat. There's a lesson here. But you and I, though, and the people of Israel here, We struggle sometimes waiting for the blessing, waiting for what God has said he will do. Look at 59 and 60. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. They would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother, Elizabeth, answered, no, he shall be called John. Now ask yourself, why this ritual language and this rite? Why this tradition? Well, it'll help us understand the patience involved in God's covenant. The tradition of circumcision is not their own creation. It's not. But it's been given by command of God, and it's been given to them as a covenant sign to remind them of God's faithfulness, that God was making them their, uh, his own people. They were to circumcise the male child on the eighth day, That's Genesis 17 and Leviticus 12. And so they're doing that in obedience to God's commands. They would also give them the name on that day that they'd be called the rest of their life. You see, in patience, Israel has been circumcising their children on the eighth day for a long, long time, hundreds and hundreds and thousands even of years. In this understanding, they are waiting for the Messiah who's going to come and be able to circumcise their hearts. It was by faith that the patriarch Abram believed and that God counted him righteous, regardless of his sin and doubt. And it was after that that the sign of God's covenant-keeping love set apart him, circumcision, and as a people. Something about covenant patience that's not talked about Uh, but to be understood among God's people, is that when God has said something, when he's promised something, and he has waited for reasons that seem unknown to us, uh, to these people at the time, we're called to be satisfied in our waiting. We're called to be content in our waiting for God to move. I mean, that sounds romantic, right? It sounds novel to receive a promise from God and then to be able to be content in waiting for him to do what he said he will do. But if you are in Christ today and you're waiting on an answered prayer or you're waiting for relief from pain or suffering, 
If you're downcast, it can be really miserable to continue in that moment. You can lose contentedness. You can become miserable. Maybe as miserable as circumcision itself, right? I mean, look, there's nothing attractive about this scene. A crying, miserable infant in pain, a shedding of blood, discomfort, screaming, and yet we're all hoping that this is for the promise. That's the, that's the scene. I mean, the reminder's clear. Believe in God, even when it hurts. That's a true sign of covenant faith. That's what circumcision is saying. Abram and his descendants receive it in old age. They were to remember in their pain. It's like this, endure the beating sun of trial. You know why? Because the root of promise runs deep, Jesus says. He says no thorn is going to choke it out or a thistle is going to choke it out. No bird is going to steal it away from you off the path. It's not going to wither under the sun. Jesus says that later in his life. What can happen, though, at times, and this is what we see in the text, is that covenant faithfulness and patience and waiting on God, it can pair with tradition, and rather than get what that was supposed to be, it can become something else. That's what happens. Look in 61 through 63. They said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. So the people are talking to Elizabeth here, okay? Look in your text. And they made signs to his father. Remember, his father cannot speak because the angel Gabriel has silenced him for not believing this this promise. Inquiring what he wanted him to be called, it says. And he asked for a writing tablet, and Zechariah wrote, his name is John, and they all wondered. The people are making assumptions in this text. They, They are making assumptions for what they think is best, and therefore they are cutting out by their tradition the plan of God. Now, they're doing it unknowingly. They're doing it impatiently, but they're doing it. And we need to make note of it. It's kind of, you know, everyone has an opinion of what to name your kid, right? I mean, we get that jokingly here, but you need to understand in their day, the tradition that they have in in mind is is an opinion that they form. The child should walk in his father's legacy. It was normal for that in naming, and it was meaningful. It was to continue to believe in the perpetual promises. That's what it was supposed to be, but it wasn't a, a law. They didn't have to name a child after a father, but they wanted to make it a law. And in this moment, they're willing to call out Elizabeth. The they in the text here are those who value man's religious tradition over God's good commandments. And God's good plan. And God's good timing. They're impatient. God's good law is good. Right? I mean, the church said amen, right? God's law is a delight. Should be. And yet, man's wicked tradition, when it takes the law, it can really just trample the idea of covenant patience. Legalism was a silent assassin in Israel's day here. We see that, just like it can be in our day today. What happens is is when we take God's precepts and we begin to elevate them to a place God did not have them, we can form opinions from them. And oftentimes with our opinion, we can then try to bind God in a contractual relationship. It is the will of God that you name the child after your father, not that you name him after whatever John, what you would say. Nobody's named John. You see what they're doing? You see the worldliness Impatience will push us to this point. 
We end up digressing from a saving faith apart from works of the law, and we take works of the law as our saving faith. Why? It's just easier to do. It's quicker. I have more control over it. All I have to do is just twist this presentation of it a little bit, call it orthodoxy, call it truth, and I can do what I want. We do this individually to our own detriment. We do this collectively, and God's people were just as guilty of that. You know what John means? Yahweh is gracious. That's what the angel said this this baby boy is supposed to be named. The prophet of the Most High, he will be a billboard that says, God is gracious. He forgives you. He loves you. And here, they're wrong. But we get to hear from Zechariah. He grabs a writing writing tablet, a witness indeed that God raises up. And I love this, you know. This guy struck out the first time, remember, right? I mean, he did not get it. He was in the mode of, I'm going to do this on my terms. I'm going to get man's tradition. We're going to do our tradition that God's given us. And God met him and said, no, you're going to be set apart for me. And if you can't do my will, I'll silence you. He has literally been silenced for nine months. He gets a tablet, though, and he, even though he can't speak, (coughs) excuse me, even though he can't speak, he writes it out. His name is John. He shows us that there is an inheritance for those who understand patience. Immediately, his mouth was opened, it says in verse 64. His tongue was loosed. And he spoke, blessing God, fear, and fear, underline this, this is important, and fear came to all their neighbors, the they, the they that were just doubting, came to them, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea, and all who heard him laid them up in their hearts, saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with John, was with him, the the child. Great power is displayed by God here, paired with a now obedient speaking messenger or priest, Zechariah. Fear seized the people, it says. Why? Because he repented in his nine months of silence of what they were falling into, their impatience. He had repented of that, and he was able to speak out and speak the truth And it affected them. Immediately affected them. The same people who would in a moment try to put man's tradition above God's will, now in the exact moment are ready to do the opposite. And not only that, it's happening on a heart level. They are storing up in their hearts what is being said about this moment. Before they were only in their heads trying to function in the world. Now they're in their hearts and something's going on. Word spread of what God has done bringing this child into this world to this family. We will see this stored in the heart idea in Luke's gospel again as we study Jesus' birth because Mary will store things in her heart. But I tell you, I have to say, Luke is trying to show us it is, it is, uh, you know, it is God who woos people to himself. In impatience, we will not put ourselves under the things of God that can actually stir up in us the grace that he's put there for the church. We get out of that when we're impatient and our heart gets, it starts wandering away. But under God is this wooing. This, this, God can woo your soul. He can bring you into the covenant of his amazing grace. And he can actually make it amazing. He can open your eyes to see things that you have not seen. It's God calling him people, his people to himself. 
They store it up in their hearts. It's like they're holding their breath now. And the message is patience, right? I mean, it's been patience up until this birth. Do you know it's going to be 30 years more patience? They better be ready. But here's the hope. Whatever doubts they had, they've now been silenced, at least for a time. The Lord's hand being with John is this implication of him being filled with the Holy Spirit. He is the prophet of the Most High. It's true. And all of this comes, you know what, from one man's repentance. I love that. The whole city gets to learn because one man, Zechariah, his father, was willing to humble himself and repent and trust that, hey, we need to be patient. We need to be patient. So the covenant of the Most High requires patience. Point two. We also see in this text that the covenant of the Most High remembers providence. So it requires patience, but in that it also remembers providence. Verse 67 His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, this is important, the people are blessed. They are blessed to hear from God. We know that already. Uh, But because Zechariah is of the order of the priests, it's, it's normal for him to relay a message from God. But here, this is now prophecy. So, I mean, this is like Luke went back after this and got this word for word and, and wrote it down. And this is, this is a, all of the scripture is inspired and we believe this to be God's word perfectly. But this is, this is now, uh, write it down, make it known. This is something that needs to sit there and not go anywhere. And it's for God's people. And they need to be called to remember. He speaks, God speaks through him. And, and what we get is this call to remember that God provides. So be patient. Wait for God. But also, He provides. He will provide what you need. In verses 68 through 75, you look at that. It's a large section that we're going to cover. But he really is just calling them to remember God's covenant-keeping promises by bringing up their history, by reminding them of God's provision along the way. And it's a long way. It's the whole Old Testament that you have over here kind of way. He hearkens all the way back to Abram. He hearkens to David. He brings them through. And what's amazing is this first section, 68 through 75, is all about Jesus. Which is really cool. It's like the history of God, and then it's about Jesus, which is important. You should not read your Old Testament without an understanding that Christ is in it. He's in the old. He's in the history, right? But now we get to see they're coming together. Like, finally, they're, like they're bridging together. The old covenant is going to become the new covenant. So when it says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, because he's visited his people, it says things like he's raised up a horn of salvation. Do you see that in the text? That's Davidic. That's the Davidic covenant, the, the promise to David that out of Jesse's root would come this son, The son of David, a a king of kings to reign. That's Jesus. When it talks about the prophets, the holy prophets of old, Zechariah, a blanket term here, minor and major and minor, right? All of them are in some way speaking of the one to come. And that's Jesus. He's the fulfillment of the holy prophets, it says. He is the line of David. He is of the horn of salvation. Jesus will rescue them from the greatest enemy they face, as it says there in the verse in 68 through 71. He will save them from their enemies, from the hand of those who hate them. Here's the thing. They think that means the Romans. 
God knows that means the original accuser, Satan. And then the original accuser persons, Adam and Eve, that fell outside of God's tradition and good law and hope that they had there and sought it elsewhere. Their enemies are within them. You've probably heard that before. The enemy within enemy, right? I mean, the, the enemy is their hearts. The enemy is, this, is the Satan who would come and, and to accuse and to twist God's word. That's who Jesus has come to rescue them from. What did God do for the house of David that they remember? He provided. He provided. They're to remember God's providence. Look at 72 through 75. He now zooms in on Abram. He wants to be more specific, to show the mercy promised to our fathers, to remember his holy covenant. Notice we're talking about a family now. Did you catch that? Father. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham. Some strong covenantal language here. God swore to the father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies... Verse 74 and 5, might serve him without fear. We serve him in holiness and righteousness. He's calling them in the covenant of the Most High to remember providence, to remember God's provision. Abram is a giant case study of remembering God's faithfulness. When you read Genesis 15 and on, you see that God makes a covenant with him, a promise, and then he, tell, and then he has to wait. He has to be patient. And in his waiting and in his patience, he has to believe that God is providing. God is, God is providing. Be patient, Abram. This is his story in the Old Testament over and over again. In the most beautiful way, God started the covenant of promise with Abram. He cut all these animals up. He spilt all their blood. He laid the pieces on either side. In Abram's day, Abram knew that's what kings do when they make a treaty, when they make a pact. And God did that with him. And then he, he said, all right, walk through it. That's what Abram's expecting. He's going to walk through it. Because if he would have walked through all this blood and death and torn apart bodies, he would have been saying, what I have to do in this pact, in this treaty, I, let me be treated like these animals, God, if, it, if, it, if, it, if I can't do it. And in Genesis 15, we learn that only one passes through the pieces. And it's not Abram. It's not the impatient needing of a Savior, Abram. You know who it is? God himself. God appears a theophany, smoking fire pot, flaming torch. It's this image of God. God walks through the pieces. I tell you that one of all of them because, you know, Jesus fulfilled that promise by being torn, cut, by being bled out and broken and beat down as we'll celebrate in communion today. That Jesus was like those animals torn asunder and he did it for you and he did it for me and he did it for his people. Why? Because he provides. God provides. And the covenant of the Most High was always preaching a, a promise of that. And Zechariah and these people knew it. So when they say this, they declare, God has always delivered us. He took us out of Egypt. He's bringing us home in our exodus. He, he took us out of, of Ur, and he's bringing us to a, a promised land with, a, with a, a descendants. And it's not about the land, and it's not about the descendants. It's about God. And it's about God being good despite difficulty. See, the good news about the covenant of the Most High is that it is a covenant of grace. You've heard me say that in the sermon, but I want to be clear. Grace is receiving unmerited favor from God. 
I think we get that. We hear that a lot. But grace doesn't stop there. Grace also includes not being able to return the favor of what you've just received to God and yet still being accepted by Him as well. We talk about grace revealed in the moment and we love it because it's like, I didn't deserve it and I'm saved. But, but, but then we sometimes don't continue in that promise of what I just said. Because then God requires of you something, right? Your good works. Ephesians 2, He's predestined you to walk in them. And then you don't. Why? Maybe because of impatience, point one, failure to remember him. Maybe, maybe because you, you get to this place where, you know, it's just easier to meet your own needs instead of relying on God's providence. I don't know. But when you seem to want to fall out of it and now you're not giving back to God what he has so graciously given to you, you know what God still does? He still accepts you. He forgives you still. He still loves you. The Puritan pastor, Richard Sibbs, says it in the most beautiful way. You've heard me say this before, but I'll probably say this till I die. So just write this in your Bibles as a good quote. He says, God knows we have nothing of ourselves. Therefore, in the covenant of grace, he requires no more than he gives, but gives what he requires and accepts what he gives. That's well said. That's the best way to remember how do you remember God's providence? Love. You remember love. You remember that God so loved the world that he gave this baby boy, Jesus, his son. And this baby boy, John the Baptist, came before him as the prophet of the Most High to point to that. That's what his father is explaining. So, coming to the Most High requires patience. It, it remembers providence. And finally, it redeems the people. You know, he continues to prophesy, but now he turns to the baby that's in his arm. I want you to imagine this. He's holding his own son. I mean, imagine this scene as, he, as he's holding the baby, comforted him, you know, after he's just been circumcised and, and the baby's probably, you know, recovering and breathing, all right? But things have calmed down enough for Zechariah to proclaim. Him and Elizabeth standing there, he proclaims out loud. And what does he have to say about his own son? He has to say that God, the covenant-keeping God, redeems, redeems the people. That is, he saves. Simple message, but a beautiful one. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation, and to give it to his people. Remember when Jesus said, those who hear my words have ears to hear? Those who, you know, they have hearts of flesh because they're hearts of stone, as Ezekiel put it, is being removed. Old covenant language like Ezekiel or Jeremiah said that God would give his, his, his new covenant to his people, right? This is, this is drawing on God is creating. It's what God's been doing from the very beginning, and now he's doing it yet again. He's going to make all things new, giving knowledge. And what's it a knowledge of? Forgiveness of sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God. If I'm Zechariah, I'm weeping in this moment. Are you? Our church covenant says rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. And Christians are called to weep with those who weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice. 
That has to come, though, from an understanding of how our own church covenant starts, which is this idea of Romans 6, that you've been baptized into Christ. You are sharing. You you are taking part in your baptism in this idea of I'm dead in my trespasses and sins, but God has forgiven me of them, and he's made me alive with Christ. I mean, Zechariah is not saying it that plain because he doesn't have the book of Romans. But hear me, God has made it so clear to him and these people that being his people, God's people, they're hearing it. They're they're aware that redemption is coming. It's amazing. He says that his own son's message is going to be one whereby which they'll be visited with this light, this light. What is Jesus' favorite way to explain himself? Light of the world, right? Light coming into darkness, coming into the shadow of death and outshining it, giving way of peace. Verse 79. Here's what you need to know about John the Baptist. He will preach repentance. It's a big deal. He will call these people, interesting enough, (laughs) he'll call these people that that are right now in this moment rejoicing, 30 years from now, this boy is going to grow up and he's going to call them to repent of their sexual immorality. He's going to call them to repent of their greed. He's going to call them to let let God change their hearts in regards to their immoral living about how they break God's law. He's even going to go as far as to address what we've talked about this morning, their legalism, as he calls out the Pharisees, you brood of vipers. This baby will grow up to be one who preaches repentance. He's going to call them to turn away from the world, to be baptized, which was scandalous then in the Jordan River. They're supposed to go to the temple to get washed and clean, but they're going to go out to him at the riverside, out in the country, in the wilderness, where the wild things are? Yes. Why? Because God is raising up one who can go into the wilderness and do what we can't do, destroy and, and kill the serpent, deny his temptation, stop death. How? How does he do this? How does he prepare them? Well, he preaches repentance. That's how God redeems the people. It's through repentance. It's not popular. Some people call it fire and brimstone. But it's important to say that you do not have a sufficient Savior if you don't deal with your sin. You have got to deal with sin if you're going to be a redeemed people. You've got to see the importance that when regeneration happens, it bears fruit in faith and repentance. We love faith. We love it. Tattoo it on our arms. Put it on the... You know, the the living room wall. Talk about it on Facebook. But rarely do people put on their wall, you know, he who loves God will cut off his arm when it causes him to sin or cut off his leg when it causes him to sin because it's better to limp into the kingdom of heaven than for my whole body to be thrown into hell. But that's the gospel, at least a part of it, a crucial part of it, that we should rejoice because God, in redeeming the people, he is in John's message saying that this Redeemer has got to be able to forgive sin. And friend, what did Jesus do but to show up and preach repentance and preach that he himself can forgive sin? Jesus alone forgives sin. In our church statement of faith, we say this, Jesus the Son, he unites in his wonderful person the tenderest sympathies of divine perfections. You want me to explain that? It's our text. It's because of the tender mercy of our God. Did you hear that in this? John's message is going to be because of the tender mercy of our God. 
It's like, how is repentance, like hellfire and brimstone, connected to this idea of tender mercy from God? Let me tell you why. Christ. (laughs) Because Jesus can unite in his wonderful person the tenderest of sympathies with divine perfections. Right? The, 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 The sting of death that is justice for us, we die because we sin, can meet the softest lamb and it can crush him. Why? God marriage. God is uniting his divine decree with, with this wonderful, tender forgiveness in Christ. What does that leave, Jesus asked? Our statement says, in every way, a suitable, compassionate, and all-sufficient Savior. I mean, amen. I bring that up because praise the Lord for his redeeming work. I mean, if Christmas is to be married, like truly merry in your heart, like bring you to, you know, the highest it can bring you emotionally, you got to see that in your lowest broken state, God can redeem you. That's how Christmas becomes merry. That's how the covenant of the Most High works. He redeems the people. It's almost as if the lower they sink in humility, the more likely they are to encounter what God is actually doing. I mean, God works in the grimiest, dirtiest, hardest places to bring out the most beautiful thing out of wretches. That's grace. The child grew, it says in verse 80. I love this. My whole sermon, all three points, requires patience, and, and you need to, uh, I can't remember it now, uh, requires patience. Um, uh, hold on, I got you. I got you, I got a promise. Um, it requires patience. It remembers providence, remembers providence, and redeems the people. It's all here in verse 80. Child grew, became strong in spirit, was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Concerning the prophet of the Most High, the covenant of God that he understands, John was patient in his life. He was patient. I'm concluding for us here. He was patient in his life, willing to wait in the wilderness, trusting God's promises and God's timing. And he did that until the right day of his public appearance. You know what that was? Over 30 years. Are we willing to wait possibly that long for what we hope to be a fulfillment of God's promises in our own lives? Are we willing to struggle that hard alongside God who has struggled alongside us? We should. John did it. He was remembering God's providence. He trusted God to provide for him in that wilderness. We learned in other texts that this dude was living off the land. He was demonstrating eating locusts and wild honey that God was providing for him for years. I mean, that's a very raw example. We could apply it to a million places in our own lives, though. He trusted God's providence. And of course, he's a man who is strong in the spirit. He's been redeemed. He's been redeemed by God. We will see in in, in future weeks that uh, the spirit fills him even in utero. (laughs) The womb, he rejoices. He indeed was redeemed, saved by faith in the Messiah to come. The Messiah to come months after him. Today, brother and sister in Christ, we should follow his example. Today, those of you who are not in Christ, you must understand that for you to have the patience that's required of you, for you to understand the providence of God, it is he can provide for your needs. And for you to understand what it means to be his people, you must be redeemed. You must place your faith and your hope and your trust in Christ alone. Repent of your sins and trust him. 
when we do this, the covenant of the Most High, He always deals with us regarding Christ, not what we deserve. And that's good news. That's cause for rejoice. It's also cause for remembrance. So I'm going to pray in closing. We'll turn next week in our series uh, to conclude uh, as we start to look at Jesus now and His birth narrative. But for today, we conclude here before taking the Lord's Supper after we worship in song. And I want to encourage you to remember the covenant, excuse me, to remember the covenant of the Most High. Will you pray with me? God, thank you for the, this morning. Thank you for the truth of Scripture, for your word, which is truth. And God, thank you that, as Sib said so eloquently, what, what you require, we can't give, but what you give, you accept. That's such good news. Because we, God, are broken. So Lord, as we sing, and as we confess our sins corporately, and as we come to this table again, humble us, Lord. Let our tongues be loosed as Zechariah's were for this little moment. God, we ask genuinely that as we sing, that it would be like being in heaven. We're tired and we're worn out by this world. This is a season for us to remember, God. Help us to be merry in it. But Lord, help us to remember that that's because you meet us in our lowliness, God. For you came lowly and in a manger. God, I pray that you will use the words of this song, the prayers we pray in our time in uh, remembrance today to remember the, the thing that matters most. And that's that you, Jesus, paid it all. So help us to do that now in Jesus' name. Amen.